I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, listeners. Today's speaker is Michael Bernard, an architect and friend from San Francisco. I first started speaking with Michael when I was doing some research on how to make the transition from working inside an architecture studio to going out on my own into management consulting. He's a very good listener and always has interesting and insightful observations to share. I thought he'd be very interesting to bring on the show because of his breadth of work with AEC firms during his career. Michael understands the operational side of running an architecture practice. Similar to us, he's passionate about the management side of practice. I would say he's passionate about the social and the more human side of practice, and we're interested in asking him about what he's learned in his work with all the firms he consults with, as well as how firms are evolving through COVID and what post-COVID work looks like. Michael places his focus on the culture and operations of design practices. As principal of virtual practice, he has advised nearly 200 Bay Area design firms that neither have nor need a full-time managing principal. Michael addresses firm culture, management, and operations, the foundational elements of effective everyday function of the small design practice. Michael's range of clients include architects, landscape architects, interior designers, lighting designers, and general contractors. Great. Let's cut to the interview. So what I do, what we do is identify culturally appropriate business practices that are tailored to each firm that we work with. There's no one and done. We're not about tools first. We're about muscle memory. We hope in conversation to integrate good project management practices as a way of being, but mostly to recognize each other as members of a team that execute projects. And what types of architecture firms have you worked with over the years? Largely, the firms that I work with are very small, mostly four to six people, although I've helped firms grow from two to four to 20. And I've worked with, occasionally worked with uh, firms of 150 on specific projects. Most of the firms I work with are residential firms, and some are school designers, uh, some are cultural institution designers, others are residential interior architects. I work with the gamut of uh, local, locally grown business uh, entities, mostly designers. So Michael, how did you carve out this niche then within the industry? I will just say that I started my career in design and really worked deeply in design. But over the course of 25 years, really found my sweet spot traveling through technical drawings and and construction and all the phases of, of practice and found my sweet spot in management, managing projects, managing people. But in doing that and working in design first firms, where the iconic building was first and management came second, I always felt that I was the sort of the second or the stepchild or the 
that my opinion didn't matter as much as good design. And in that, I, I felt there was like a lack of knowledge about how to run a business, how to make money. So I started my own practice. And just to be perfectly honest, I felt the same that I, I was bringing that same second best to my practice. So it's like a bad relationship. You know, you leave a bad one and then you go into the next one and it's just like the last one. And uh, it wasn't my partner's fault. He's brilliant. But I brought that willingness to be second best to my, to my practice. So I left the practice and was um, on my own as a consulting kind of manager to projects. But I felt like I was walking on one leg, that I needed a partner. So you get into this place where it's like, I was second best. Maybe second best wasn't so bad that I had a skill, but I didn't know where to place it. And then uh, I was recruited by a firm to be the managing principal of a small but growing residential firm. And in that, I, the principal of the firm, very design first, said, don't touch the design, just do the management. And I don't care what it is, just run my business. So for a period of time, I was developing practices. But again, I felt disconnected from the very thing that I loved, which was design and supporting design. We made a lot of money. It was a very successful practice, continues to be so today, but I felt like I was walking on two legs, but I didn't know where I was going. So in the middle of this, a friend of mine invited me to lunch. He said, I see you do this managing principle thing. Can I, can I buy you lunch and you tell me how it works? And in that moment, I realized that I didn't have to do what I do in one place, that I could offer my services as a consultant to a number of small practices. And that's how I began virtual practice. And for the first year, I felt that I had lost touch with design. But in fact, I had reinvigorated my relationship to design by being perceived as having value to the firms that lacked what I offered. And I think that's the key. And I think it's key for practice across positions in a firm. At the moment where we realize that we can offer value and other people perceive that value, we have agency. So in that mindset, I began to grow virtual practice. And that was in 2006. So it's been 15 years and I don't do the same thing I used to do. I think what's interesting about being a consultant or even being an architect in what we would perceive as traditional practice is that we change, that we don't have to adhere to what we've always done, but making that leap is really hard. So I carved out a niche by first offering tools such as building a revenue model or how to write a contract or how to track fees on a project. And I came up with a kind of an easy to remember tool that I call every project has four corners. And those four corners are project scope, schedule, and design fee budget, and construction budget. Those four corners, and there are many more corners, but those four corners actually are easy to remember, contribute to the idea of muscle memory. Where am I? What's the scope? What was in the initial project brief? How much time do I have? How much did I burn? What do I have left? How do I have to trim what I'm doing to fit the schedule? How much design fee do I have? And how do I adjust what I'm drawing to what I must draw, not exactly what I want to draw? And what's the construction budget? And if those corners come out, kind of get out of 90 degrees square, 
how do I adjust it so the square is square again? So these aren't softwares. These are muscle memory that any architect or interior designer or landscape architect or any designer can adopt and use as orientation points, anyone at any level, whether you're a recently graduated junior or a senior project manager, where am I? Where am I in the universe of my project? Michael, at the top of the call before we started hitting record, and you just alluded to it now, you've kind of talked about the evolution of virtual practice, Mm -hmm. um, especially now coming out of COVID. So where's your focus now? So my focus has shifted from nuts and bolts to heart and soul. That the nuts and bolts are the four corners of every project. And it became a mantra for me. And in the describing of that to different firms and gaining an understanding of all the different firms I've worked with from one person to 20 and more, the big picture finally hit me. There is culture that is the container for how we work. It's not one size fits all. So my curiosity was really piqued. I was very curious about how firms were structured. How does the principal engage with their staff? Oh, this firm seems like it's really focused on the projects and they ignore the container of the projects, the practice. The practice is the culture nurturer. How do people communicate? All these questions arose for me. And so I became less interested in the tools except that they help me pry open a sense of the culture of the studio. And so with the, I've worked with over 200 firms in the last 15 years. I work with 25 firms in any given month. And in that context, I realized that I'm doing a lot of coaching and I've, I've taken a coaching course and uh, realized that one of the important things about these tools is that they have to have a container. And that container, again, is the culture of the practice. Some firms don't even know they have a culture. Some firms are very aware of culture. One of my clients meets with me for two hours every week, and we discuss culture explicitly. How do we support our staff? How do they generate enthusiasm for their projects? What is our message externally? What is our message internally? Are those consistent? Do they need to be consistent? So I shifted about six months ago. I had already shifted. I didn't know where my market was and my market didn't know where I was. I had an interview with a potential client who found me through a connection, through a website, et cetera. And we had a conversation and and this prospective client said, wow, I had no idea this is what you do. It's so different from what you communicate on your website. And in that moment, I got the most valuable feedback I could have gotten in a very long time. So within a couple of weeks, I redesigned my website and it launched a few months later. And now it's very clear to people who might work with me what I do. So it's a combination, as I said, of nuts and bolts, where I talk about real hard, you know, real concrete practice tools that are not software-based, that are really intuitively-based and muscle memory-based, that anyone can refer to as reference points. A lot of what I do now is, is talk about what is the culture of your practice. If we think about a typical studio where there might be four people and 20 projects of a certain size, 
we think about a 40 hour week, we think about our project, we're anchored to that project, we glue our fingers to the keyboard and we draw, but there's more. If you think about the container, there's space around each of these projects. There is the shift from project A to project B. And that 15 minute interval where you kind of erase your brain to shift from one to the next, it's not work time, but it's presence time. So if you really have, if you think on your plate as a project manager, you have three projects, you actually have four. The fourth project is that space between the projects and principals don't think about that. Oh, well like, said. I want you- <laughs> they think, you know, well, it's true, isn't it? It is true. And I, I, I'm so glad you articulated it. Well, I mean, and the, I mean, we call it switching costs, right? Um, with my the MBA um, program, so and there's definitely costs associated with like the mind shift from one project to the next. Right, and so you see, when I shifted from here's how you build a project, I thought, wait, let's extend out and look at the context in which this work is done. And it's um. You know, if you say my employees don't work 40 hours a week, well, actually, they work 42 hours a week. If they work 37 hours on projects and they had an hour a day where they had to shift from one thing to the next, that's five hours. So let's plan our work around a 37 hour week. Let's not build a schedule around 40 hours because we're already late. If it's a 10 week project, we're two weeks out. So let's just say that it's a 37-hour budget for the week, acknowledging that people aren't working from project to project to project. So that was a big shift, I think, to explain that to clients. And that's not a nuts and bolts thing. It's actually bigger. It involves compassion. It involves understanding. It's a two-way street. I think it's interesting, and I just want to pause there because what you've said is just really insightful. And I think probably uh, as someone who's worked on the production side, one of the frustrations is projects are profitable as long as I'm working on the project, yet there was never any slack time for the, uh, you know, the in-between. And I think that's what's really great about your point of view as someone who thinks both about the nuts and bolts, as you say, and this cultural piece. You're able to connect the mathematical profit equation to the kind of social cultural equation, which is more of an abstract piece of the office. Yeah. And part of it is for a junior who really has no training or an intermediate, it doesn't really matter. We receive this idea of how practice should be. We hear about the 40 hour week in a 40 hour week, we're present, but we're not billable all that time. I don't, and I don't want to linger there. Well, and does any architecture firm actually work a 40 hour (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and I hear about this all the time. And, and so, you know, when we talk about operations management, sure, there are the tools, but operations management, I don't mean to be a renegade, but I am involved seeing your, your employees and meeting them where they are and, and being realistic about what's possible instead of sticking to adhering to some received myth about how practice is organized. I mean, look, architecture is a privileged profession. It always has been since women and men left caves and built built shelter with found objects. And for a long time, it didn't matter whether you made money or not. We exist within a capitalist context. So for a studio to thrive, unless one has the resources, 
for a studio to thrive in a capitalist context, we have to make money. And so we teach people how to run projects profitably and efficiently because that's a cultural expectation. But there's a conflict between this notion of high design and design first and profitability. I'm not gonna dive too deeply into that, but I see that conflict. You know, for a long time, we thought that integrated building design or BIM would be the future. Frankly, and this is what contributes to my shift from nuts and bolts to heart and soul. Frankly, I think we will see a move towards a more socially focused practice. Who, whoever thought in the way that we received information that we would focus more on the social, on the cultural, on who we serve, so that architects who think we are thought leaders are actually contributors. We, we don't have to lead. We have to contribute and collaborate. I'm interested in how that translates to new business models and whether or not you think of that, because, you know, we've, or I have always argued that architecture um, is also suffers from the most like economic cycle there is, right? There's always time when your clients that aren't building. There's always time when your clients are building. And I've also argued it's never enough for you to just be multi-market, right? Like you actually have to expand practice outside of traditional practice. So mm-hmm. how does this play into where you're headed, if at all? Great question. So I work with a nonprofit architecture firm that is recognizable to the outside world as an architecture practice that is bundled with advocacy, community engagement, and decarceration. So here you have the architect who might be in any, in any other firm, the principles of a firm would be siloed. They would be commercial, interiors, multifamily, and each principle would have their universe and they would communicate at a business level, but perhaps not across like maybe in a mixed use facility, but let's just say that they have their own markets and they are the chiefs of those those markets. In this particular organization, the very architectural project relies on the intense collaboration at the top of community engagement, advocacy, and architecture. And they develop their own projects, by the way. So they all at the top have to collaborate. And architecture is one piece of that. It's almost like like a campus architect, if you will. There are benefactors who fund, there is uh, a lab that needs a facility, there's a programmer who, you know, you see what I mean, that it's all kind of tied together. They can't be siloed at the top in this nonprofit architecture firm. And that's what I mean about a socially organized architecture firm, where there are different components that require architecture and, and the built environment to develop a project that serves a population in restorative justice. So it's a very different organization, a different way to organize. And so the architects who come from this culture of architecture school, which is infused with this privilege, how do we unbundle that privilege from the essence of practice? Because we carry that receive knowledge that comes through our professors, through history. We don't even know that we're doing it. How do we become aware, conscious of this vestige of privilege and shed it? 
and focus on how we engage in society. So yes, Evelyn, I agree. There are ebbs and flows and we exist in a capitalist context where people need our services and they don't need our services, whatever the economic vicissitudes are that influence that. In some cases, there are socially organized architecture firms that are funded privately, that develop and that serve their communities and change the way we use architecture and shed this idea of design first, architect as thought leader. We are a member of a team. We are a member of a team, the group leads. I guess a follow-up question would, and going back to something that you previously posed, can architecture firms ever really truly be a design first firm if most of our hours are spent not where we're designing? It's a very good question. What is design? As a professor of professional practice, I would tell my students, like, we are 45 in this class or 30 in this class. Typically, schematic design is 15 or 20% of any design project, and the rest is, is deep thinking, technical thinking, site work, you know, construction observation. So which of you, if, if 15% of us get to design, who is it? That is a very discomforting question to ask a class in their third year of a master's program. Which 15% of you will be designers? Okay, so we start with that. And then in practice, if you're a good designer, are you isolating yourself from the rest of practice? And if you are and you're good at doing that, great. Then you're like in the 1%. <laughs> but if you're like most folks, that 15% is something you might touch for a while and then move on to something that is more profitable as determined by your employer, <laughs> <laughs> like construction docs. And, there's a, and there's, a, there's a sad moment when somebody who's really good at management but really fights to remain a designer uh, is promoted in management. And then they develop this conflict, which turns into bitterness in, in many people that I, I really don't like management. It's not what I went to graduate school for. I'm a designer. And they fight to hold on to that design, but they don't allow themselves to shift or evolve because of that received understanding of what an architect is. I think that's the problem I have with architecture is that we so are so willing to narrowly define ourselves that we are the most entrepreneurial of all the professions, that we are capable of being the broadest, most entrepreneurial, most liberal. I was gonna argue with there. I would say we are capable. I would say we are like the least hustle. Like we have so little hustle for a profession, but yes. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, but doesn't that come, I mean, I, my opinion, I won't even pose it as a question. My opinion is it, it comes from this kind of received sense of privilege and where do I plug into that privilege? Uh, and if we can let that go, can we be a little looser and, and engage in, in a broader understanding or develop a broader understanding of the utility of architecture in the world. We're talking about a lot of different ideas here that I think there's, there's a lot of synergy between the work that you're doing, Michael, and the work that Evelyn and I are doing to try and figure out these blind spots that we're seeing in architecture firms and with architects. And it's not to say that architects aren't 
skilled. They're very skilled professionals in many, many ways. But we keep seeing blind spots. It, it sounds like you're seeing them as well. And I was wondering if maybe you can articulate some of the ones that you're seeing. Sure. Well, I would like to hear the ones you see and so and see if we resonate. Well, for me, I've always seen the cultural aspect is a huge missed opportunity in the firm. That 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 I think is at the root of a lot of my work that I've been doing since I entered the profession. You know, I came out of school with this very rich experience through my college and undergraduate years and through AIS thinking about the cultural transactions that are happening in those environments. And then when I went into an architecture firm, I was so disappointed by how undervalued that was in the day-to-day professional experience. And so I fought tooth and nail at every firm I've worked at to make sure that culture is at the forefront of the work that we're doing together as a team. And then I would also say the management piece really resonated with me from what you said, because interestingly enough, I almost had the opposite experience of what you described, where I knew going into a firm, I was going to be a manager, I was going to be a potential future firm owner. And nobody recognized that. They all wanted to put me in the design funnel to be the production jockey. And I resisted it the whole way and was really resentful that nobody understood my interest in management or knew how to staff me in a way that would have been most effective and profitable to them. That so resonates with me. You articulated it uh, way better than I did many years ago. I just, the essence in anyone is how do we be what we do? In other words, I realized that I yearned to lead. That had nothing to do with architecture, nothing to do with, you know, the day-to-day thing. My fundamental yearning was to lead and to be in second place. I didn't know why I kept hitting that wall until I stepped out on my own and somebody invited me to lead. Could I take you to lunch and you tell me how you do that managing principle thing? Was a message. It was a really powerful message. And I heard it. So I, your experience resonates with my own. I just didn't have the word. I had to wait for the message. <laughs> you had to wait for the message. Yeah. I So, blind. you know, we're talking about blind spots and I have a few and they're kind of bullet points. One of the, one of them, the challenges is, uh, is when in a small firm, when a principal starts up and especially in a startup firm where a principal grows at a faster rate than their staff. So we bring somebody on, it's a two person firm. It's the two of us in the trenches. We're doing this work and the principal's kind of going on an upward incline but the rate of incline for the employee, the first employee, the anchor employee, is a much shallower climb. And so over 10 years, we find that that person that we relied on is really not in the game as much as we are. And then we can be stuck. We can allow ourselves to become stuck. We either, we have to figure out a way to respect that person, but you know, part of it is way back there, When we first started, we weren't aware. We were just trying to get work done. We were very project focused. We weren't firm focused. We were focused on our currency, but not the container of that currency. So maybe we should have let go earlier. Maybe we should have delegated earlier. Maybe we should have been more inquiring about what this person wanted to do. 
because they may not be the heir to our firm. They may be this, our same age, which puts them in a particular category of, of whether they will take over the firm when I decide to retire. So how do, we, how do we think early on about this person sitting next to me who helped me start my firm? And yet, as I've shifted, as I've changed the way I engage with clients and projects and other staff, how do we work around that person? Do we keep them around? Do we just give them special projects? How do we, how do we work together? That's a real blind spot. And it, it's a blind spot that is from the very beginning. And we don't always think about it until it's very far down the road. No, I think, I mean, so we, we talk about this as career pathing um, all the time. And I think it's, mm-hmm. um, it's so critical, not only as an employer to think about the development of your people and actually set them up for success, but as an employee to know that I actually have runway um, to grow here too. So I think it's, I mean, you were talking about blind spots. And for me, the blind spots are that, like, we just don't do any of these normal, what I would consider normal people processes that even larger companies at at tech firms, like, they inevitably have to do. And I think it's, you know, we are so project focused. For me, the the blind spot is, like, we never take the time to really consider if there's a way to optimize what we are doing or to consider if there's a way to to do what we're doing better, you know, and even with our IT stack, we keep adding things to it because we want to do new and different things to our, our model, but we don't like look at our whole process and say, is there a different way to get from A to B? So every time we bring on a new person, we're not walking them through this now 50 step process to get out the finished drawing that we want to get out. Um, right. So those are, I mean, that plays right into all of the blind spots that I've been seeing. I, I completely agree. I, um, every time we bring in a new employee, we have the opportunity. We don't have the opportunity. We don't have the choice. Our culture just changed. And it changed whether we accept it or not. And it's more successful if we see the client, if see the employee. If we see the employee and we meet them where they are, then we have traction to build a culture. Seeing our colleagues is fundamental. In some, in some firms, you know, I will meet with, um, as a mentor, uh, I will meet with the project managers or the project leads. And the first couple of meetings are always very polite. And they're polite because we, I find that there's the, there's the possibility that those project managers, and they're designers as well as producers, but they're managing projects. So they have a you know, multiplicity of roles but they don't have a common language. They build their language and we build the language by just meeting. And eventually by the fourth meeting, third, fourth meeting, there's some phone building. It is not flat beer. People are really, are really like starting to get irritated about and they don't know what they're irritated about. And that's when our language begins. That's when we begin. And that's what I love. That's where my curiosity is being patient and listening and meeting my group where they are so that they develop a language that is unique to their project range and their skill range and they have agency 
can, then the principals begin to think, oh my goodness, maybe we better amp up our game at the top. Maybe we, you know, because maybe we're not communicating correctly or accurately. And so then that group of managers can say, this is what we need from the principals. We need a clear message. We need to initiate projects with goals and intentions. Check those goals and intentions at the end of a phase. What fell off the table? What do we have to do in DD that we didn't get in schematics? Did we tell the client that we didn't get there and are they cool with it? Let's make them cool with it. How do we do that? And, and so the managers have these conversations because they're really bearing the burden of being profitable, being timely, meeting the scope, identifying changes, all of these things, all of these challenges fall to the design managers and managers of projects. So to have them meet as a group, to give that group agency is not to create an insurrection at all. It is to, is to give people the opportunity to create a culture and for the principals to stand back and marvel at this group that really owns it and then the principals who have delegated the responsibility for culture within their container to go out in the world and meet clients where they are. So the importance I think here is to manage up with a message and for principals to be patient with the managers to develop a language that delivers a message. It's really about communication and relationships and stepping away from the transactional focus on project, 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 Receive, deliver, receive, deliver. That's a transaction. Or put out fire. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) To to move to intention from reaction. So that's how that's how um, virtual practice, for example, has shifted from nuts and bolts, which we must have, to stepping back and seeing how people work together to generate information that we call a project as a group. There's a lot of things to unpack in there. I I do want to touch on the fact that like culture evolves and even in the business community, it's gone, you know, the hiring process has Mm -hmm. gone from being called hiring for culture fit versus hiring for culture ad. And I think we should all acknowledge that every time you bring on somebody that that culture that they are, they are adding to the complexity and to the richness of your firm culture and you need to find a way to invite them in. I also feel like in this move to COVID, like to what is work pre-COVID and what is a more flexible work policy and listening to all of these principles worry about how I manage or, or how I mentor the, the newer people coming in or how do I keep people make sure they're productive and they're accountable if they're not in the office sometime I for me and I'd love to get your take on this but for me it's really it's a part of a broken system as it's, it, it stems from the fact that we lack people systems in our firms that instill enough trust in the people we hire from day one to ensure that they are getting done what we need them to get done and I, I'm just really disheartened when the principals kind of place all the blame on the, the, their underperforming employees. And then if you, or the, the employees that weren't as productive when they were remote, remote or, the, or the, you know, the employees that, how are, how are they going to learn anything if they can't overhear my call <laughs> and take something away from that? 
you know, when, when part of that to blame is actually on the leadership of the firm, like how can you not trust somebody who is able to carry a full course load, you know, and to learn <laughs> in one or two hour increments on a weekly basis? You know, how can you not trust somebody if you haven't told them your expectations of them, like, and what you expect out of them to like on a performance level, like at a regular cadence. So for me, it stems from a lot of broken people systems and having better people systems will actually support and raise up that culture. Really good points. That's a lot to unpack. I'm going to boil it down to one word, love. And I'm not being flipped. Love is accountability and it's a two-way street. And what I'm really talking about is, a, you know, staff sees their leader and leader sees staff. And if in the before time we were a cohesive group that understood that our studio, our business, our practice is more than just projects, that we had, you know, systems in place that acknowledge each other, that the bivouac, if you will, of happy hours and ugly sweaters and those kinds of things are band-aids and they do help us. I mean, the bivouac is a, I mean, it's shelter, right? And this is the way we get through. But other firms have come up with add-ons, like we already had really good cultural systems in place to keep people connected. So what we do in one firm is a group of people unrelated on different projects will log on with each other and share space airtime and Zoom time, they're not talking to each other. They're not coordinating. They're not transacting. They're sharing a communication channel so that four or five people in four or five households during COVID hear the ambient noise of the people in each other's household. And they're working, they're click, 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 click. They're just working away on their keyboards and doing stuff. And sometimes a question will come up like, hey, so-and-so, what did you do with that Doherty pillar where that material turned a corner? And it's not why they're connected, but the point is they feel comfortable enough to just have an open channel and they call it open office hours. And nobody's on patrol. It's, it's, and it doesn't work in every office. In another office, they're like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want any of that. But that says something about the culture of the place, right? Exactly. So that kind of willingness to be open or conducting retreats virtually. That's another way that uh, firms have, have got people to work on things that are outside of practice. And that's why I say love, it's care. It's, it's, it's not just maintenance. It's something that came before. Even the most robust garden can be you know, subject to, the, to bad weather and survive. The firms I'm talking about are resilient. And other firms that rely appropriately on the independence and self-reliance and resourcefulness of employees, especially in small firms, where employees are siloed with four or five projects each and they work on their own. They might haggle over staff with a junior, but they're pretty much on their own. And then we come into shelter in place and COVID and, stay, and working from home. Those skills we value so much, which include independence, serve employees to think, you know what? I can do this on my own and they leave. So what do we do? What's the glue? That's why I say love. It's paying attention to your staff, seeing them and meeting them where they are, giving them bad news when you have to, but it's in the context of we're a team. 
but don't take it personally when they do leave, I guess would be my. <laughs> right. No, I, you, you know, know there's definitely those firm principles that like take things so personally, um, but that you have to remember that you're running a business. And if, if a person is running a career, like they're running our business, you know, sometimes things don't work out and it has nothing to do with that relationship with the principal. I think one of the things, the advice that I would have for those people that have a hard time is to stop putting your expectations on other people. Because I heard a really great quote yesterday by Seth Godin, people don't want what you want. You have to stop assuming that they do. And and, and just because you hire someone that's interested in the same things you are, and that's why you bring them into your company, it does not guarantee they're going to have the same career goals or life goals that align with how you want to grow your business. That's, you know, that I was listening to Seth Godin interviewed by Shane Parrish on the Knowledge Project. That's They're where great. he heard it. Yeah. And you'll, I'm sure you'll find the reference and, and everyone should listen to that. He describes uh, a chef in New York who told him, you know, you really shouldn't come here anymore. And in that moment, he, he stated who he was and, and the value of his offering. And again, as you say, Janine, you know, people don't necessarily want what you want, what, you, what you're giving them. So just being present with that value and letting people go when they want to go. It's like she knew what she wanted and it's not here and let's move on. Opportunity is we get to change our culture. I don't know which direction it's going, but it's going to change. So what I really like about Michael's story is that he he was a practicing architect in a firm. He was running a lot of projects and he even says at the beginning of the conversation that we aren't taught business management training in architecture school. And even when he was in practice, he experienced a lack of knowledge around the value of the business management skills that he was offering to a design studio setting. And what's interesting is that he has eventually found his way forward into um, offering this skill to the profession in a way where it is uh, received with value. And we've alluded to this a little bit in the past, but kind of the lack of entrepreneurship that's taught in school or more practical business skills, right? I remember my practice management course and, you know, I, I'm scared to think that practice management courses are the same <laughs> as they were back in the day in 2000, probably when I took mine, that it was literally just walking you chapter by chapter through the architect's handbook and practice. And I think we spent a whole day on picking a logo and designing letterhead. Um, clearly, it's not getting to the heart of business. So I've often talked about how, for me, design has translated and what I learned in school, my design experience has translated into designing strategy for business. And I feel that's the same way that design is translating for you too, Janine. And I, it's sad that we don't get to experience more of that in school and how those skills translate out to other parts of practice. Yeah, it's true. I, I don't know how to explain it. But you know, as someone who kind of gravitated towards management foundations as my design language and coming out of architecture school, that was just kind of how I wanted to practice. I found it frustrating when I went into the studio setting where that wasn't everybody's language around design. 
And so I, I find it refreshing when I talk to you or I talk to people like Michael or others that, that they're thinking about some of these like basic principles of project management or firm management or even operations management, just putting the business of the practice together in support of the design. Right. And what I also like about Michael's approach and his approach to business is his approach to humanization of business as well as a social responsibility that businesses have, not only to their employees, but I think to the greater community. And that's a trend, you know, that's one of the reasons why Presidio Graduate School, where I got my MBA, grew so quickly was because it was the first you know, sustainable MBA with this really, really large social responsibility undertow throughout its entire curriculum. And I see that being integrated in business a lot more thoughtfully today. And I see architects trying to do more of that. um, But I definitely think there's room for growth around there. Yeah. And similarly, I went to Mills College. I don't know that I've ever talked about this really on the show that much. But it was a place where it was about the social qualities of uh, business, not just the transactional. And so there was this ethical component and this purpose-driven component that really fueled my experience in getting my MBA. And so if I shift into what I heard Michael say about the way he's looking at practice, which is culture being a container for how we work. And then we shift into this conversation about operations management. I think he's right in his assessment that we just have to be more realistic going forward in in managing the social values of the people in our firms. And considering that in relation to the financial and profitable demands of the project. Right. And I think basic empathy around the switching costs that happen on a day-to-day basis is something that he really talked about, you know, how to manage the space in between projects, right? As well as the shift from his view of what he calls the nuts and bolts to heart and soul. I think in doing that, he said, he didn't say the nuts and bolts are any less important, but that heart and soul is equally important. Right. And when I think about all the research that I've been doing around the hybrid workplace, whether it's for how we are moving forward at Slack as a company or my fears of how architecture firms will move forward um, when we get beyond this planning for reentry is that we, we don't revisit our culture and our values and kind of check ourselves and ask us, you know, ask, are we li- really living into those values? And can every one of our team members on our team see themselves in a piece of those values? Yeah, exactly. I think that, and not not all firms, but many firms, I think we make the assumption that the culture is fine. And we're not really doing a thorough diagnostic of like what's actually going on with the culture. And it's only been, as we've said many times before in prior episodes, it's just only been amplified because of the pandemic and because of the way we're practicing in this virtual remote environment. Right. And I want to revisit this notion of culture fit. I think a lot of a lot of firms and even businesses have like talked about we need to hire for a culture fit. 
But when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we are really bringing new ideas to the table, we're really constantly adding to our culture. Like the culture is changing as people join the firm and as people leave the firm. So it needs to be a lot more flexible and, and intuitive, I think. And, and back to like the intentionality and empathy around people in the practice. So it was interesting how Michael began to talk about a more socially organized business structure. I agree. And it's nice to hear that his business has pivoted. And like you said, his research has kind of led him a little bit in the same direction that we've been going with what we're researching. And that's this idea that we as an industry have to look back into our own organizations and think about the people component, the culture component, the compassion and empathy component of how we're managing our firms. To move forward in our industry, we have to be a little bit more people-focused, not just on our clients, but on the team that we're operating within day-to-day. Absolutely. I think that is a great place to end our conversation. Thanks for listening and tune in next week. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practiceofarchitecture.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. We have several ways you can get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of Arc. You can also become a member of the POA Lab or join us on Patreon. And if you want to take your career or practice to the next level, Janine and I also consult, provide workshops, and speak regularly on this research. And we would love an opportunity to collaborate with you. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. We are also looking for sponsors who want to partner with us in 2021 and beyond. If that's you, please contact me directly at evelyn at practiceofarchitecture.com. If you like the research we're doing here, please help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple. We appreciate you subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing from. Thanks for listening and see you next week.